Welcome to Know Your Options, the Measured Risk Podcast. The ultimate guide to navigating the volatile nature of the markets while managing risk purposefully. Join us as we challenge the theory behind traditional asset allocation and dive into the mathematics of investing. Whether you are a seasoned investor or just starting out, this podcast offers valuable insights and practical advice to help you make informed decisions and manage your money wisely. So grab a cup of coffee, sit back, and let's dive into the world of calculated risks together. All right, welcome back to the Know Your Options podcast, the Measured Risk podcast. And my name is Larry Kriesmer. I'm one of the principals. I'm here with my partner, Bernard Sorofsky. And today we have a special guest who brings a really wealth of knowledge and experience in this uh, world of finance. And he's got a unique blend of physics background, which is kind of an unusual thing, and uh, graduated from the University of Virginia with an MBA. And he's been in the financial service business since 2002 and is a co-manager and partner at Convergence Investment Partners, LLC. Uh, he's located here in San Diego with this uh, businesses located throughout the U.S., and we'll talk about more about that. But welcome to the show, Justin Newberg. Thanks for having me, guys. Looking forward to it. Yeah, thank you. So why don't you uh, give us a quick introduction of how you got into, let's say, the early days of financial services. I think that was back in 2022. Is that correct? Or 2002. Uh, 2002, yes. 2002. Right. So I graduated from Virginia, as you said, with a degree in physics. And that was during the whole dot-com boom. Uh, and my cousin was working for a telecommunications company out on the tech quarter near Dulles Airport. And I, I got a job basically driving home from college. So I took it. Uh, it was an interesting job. I worked on computer networks. We were actually migrating computer networks from the old MCI network to the AT&T network. For, uh, there's a joint venture between British Telecom and the U.S. company, whatever it was. And it was MCI, switched to AT&T. So I had a little bit of technology experience there. Uh, then decided to move to San Diego just for the weather and the surfing and got a job with J.P. Morgan and was working in their mortgage company. Kind of a little bit of a tailwind for mortgages uh, in the early 2000s and ended up getting promoted up to be head of uh, mortgage compliance for Southern California. And believe it or not, I decided to go back to business school to get my uh, MBA in finance because I really enjoyed finance and, and investing and stuff of that nature. And after I got accepted, the last basically month of my experience with JP Morgan was part of a pretty massive internal fraud investigation uh, in <laughs> Southern California. You, there may have been a, an event that happened around 2008 or so that might had something to do with mortgages, but mm-hmm. it was a just a wild experience. I was working in the closing office and here in San Diego, and they sent me up to LA, the Inland Empire, and I was basically locked in a conference room with, I don't know, a thousand loan files on this side. And they said, look, none of these files are going to get funded unless Justin says it's okay. So the branch manager's literally banging on the door trying to get these loans funded. And I was sitting there trying to, you know, quickly sift through these files, see which ones were the highest risk, lowest risk, whatever. And I mean, I could go on for an hour on some of the wild things that happened. One quick example is there are tons of these ninja loans, the no income, no job, you know, no assets. One interesting factoid, the, the monthly income field on the application only had five digits. And so in order to justify some of these loans that were going through, People would just put in 99999 as their monthly income. That to me was a little bit of a red flag, especially when that person only had three credit cards, you know, two of which were at Walmart for 2800 bucks. Oh it was just, 
it was a really interesting experience. But anyway, so I, I basically finished up that fraud investigation and then uh, started business school. And I really wanted to go into investment banking while their investment banking basically disappeared. Uh, so my second favorite choice was to go into wealth management. Got a job here uh, in San Diego with a small wealth management shop. Wonderful experience. Really, really enjoyed it. Uh, I was working with a great CIO and was, again, a smaller shop uh, affiliated with a, you know, a top five accounting firm. <clears throat> anyway, maybe the top eight, actually. Anyway, uh, they got bought out by a much larger national RIA uh, that I then became uh, on the investment committee for them. Really enjoyed that experience. Got a lot of client interaction, a lot of financial advisor interaction, et cetera, et cetera. While I was there, I really... Uh, decided I wanted to make a transition from the buy side to more of the sell side, be working for an investment manager. And Mariner, the, the RIA, actually took majority pieces of boutique investment managers. Uh, the mantra was he wanted to bring institutional level products to retail investors. And so he took a majority piece of the firm I'm, I'm with now, Convergence Investment Partners. And I was able to move over. The fund manager at the time was actually here in San Diego. So he and I met gosh, about 13 years ago, right around the birth of my daughter. And I was able to transition over and work for him. What I really liked about what we do at Convergence was uh, a more systematic approach to stock selecting. Uh, while I was doing my investment manager due diligence at the RIAs, I always found it troublesome to try to justify a track record persisting into the future, especially if that track record was largely derived from you know, the star manager making one or two or three great either picks or asset allocations. I felt like that approach was less uh, repeatable and less replicatable. So finding a manager that had a much more systematic approach to stock selection, I, I found very attractive. I never really thought that I was a quant or a quant-ish, but as I was explaining some of the investment processes that I was using while at the RIA, uh, Dave, the, the founder of Convergence, it was kind of like, hey, man, I hate to break it to you, but that's that's pretty much quant style investing, looking for certain factors that are uh, indicative of stocks that subsequently outperform. So I've now been with Convergence now for about, well, I've known Dave for 13, worked with them for about 13, came over officially uh, in 2014, and just have really enjoyed uh, my experience with them. But now I'm a co-manager on all of the products and, and just really love what we do. So we have a just a quick background on convergence. We have a uh, proprietary stock ranking methodology that we applied to the entire US investable market. And we use that to build products, be it a long short, a dividend or a small cap, whatever we need to do. We just, you pick the universe and we can apply our stock ranking methodology. So it's a pretty flexible process that allows us to do quite a bit uh, on a quite a large number of stocks with, with less staff. That's awesome. I'm going to follow up to your comments about the mortgage business because okay. we, was, we had a, a yeah, no, we had a young advisor in our firm that wasn't making it as an advisor. Right? The really, really difficult part in this business is actually gathering AUM and getting clients in the door. And so uh, this guy wasn't making it and mortgages were huge in the lead up to 08. And so he, he left, joined a mortgage firm. I don't remember the name. And came back to us. It wasn't just, but a couple months later, and said, "I've got this loan. You guys should look at." It had five different payment methods. You could pick whatever payment plan you wanted, and one of them was twenty-five basis points. Right. So, wow. what that meant, and I'm talking about annual, right? So, on a million-dollar loan, the cash flow is about two hundred and twenty bucks a month. 
Now, if it was, ne- it was negative advertising at about six and a half or whatever the whatever right. the prevailing rate was, but if you remember at that time, houses were going up like thirty percent a year, and so who cared if your negative AM was six or seven or eight? It was just unbelievable. You know, that should have been a tell for us to just go something something's terrible is going to something don't <laughs> smell right. <laughs> yeah, this is not good. Yeah, because really anybody could qualify for that loan based on the payment. You're right. Yeah, I mean, so you didn't need $99,999 a month yeah. to uh, sustain that kind of mortgage. So, I, I, you know, I always look at investment managers and I always judge their experience by literally the color of their hair or, or the receding levels of their hairline. And you don't seem to suffer from either of those. Uh, you know, your hair looks good and it's, you know, it's, it's not like receding like that. I mean, I guess the secret to that is, is your, is your, is your approach or is it just your outlook on life? How would you, how would you kind of summarize the, the healthy hair? You know, on more than one occasion, I've been on a call with people who trade options or trade other things. And, you know, the first thing I say is, how much hair do you have? And when they tell me they're bald, I go, okay, I think you have enough experience for me now. Yeah. So it's, it's that credibility thing that comes with, you know, gray hair or receding hair. But uh, on, to, on to a more serious note, you know, you, you talk about these these philosophies that you have. So you may, I, I thought I heard you saying something that you can take your criteria and you can almost apply it to any asset class. Uh, no, you, no, no, not a, just equities, just U.S. equities. Sorry, any, mm-hmm. I should, any like division, whether it be large cap, small cap, dividend payers or whatever. I see. Can you talk a little bit about, around about what, what are some of the things you look for without giving away the secret sauce? Or is it? Sure. So, what really differentiates what we do at Convergence, I think, from a, a more traditional quant shop is that we were born out of a fundamental shop. So Dave and Todd originally worked at MI Bank and they worked on a, a large cap dividend paying equity strategy, equity strategy. And they had a team of analysts that would do, you know, fun, bottom-up fundamental stock selection. Uh, and they really worked to try to systematize that process, identifying what factors they looked at for uh, stock selection or for stock ranking, if you will. So we compiled basically about 200 factors into, and we aggregate those into a, uh, you know, 14 or so factor composites. We can call them a factor signal. Uh, so we'll have like, let's say three or four value composites. So we have a traditional value, a relative value. Uh, We look at economic size. We have kind of momentum factors. Uh, We also have more forward-looking factors. Like we have an earnings momentum factor and a sales momentum factor, which is looking at the projected earnings and the change in projected earnings over the the near future. Uh, Actually, earnings momentum tends to be one of our better factors. It's one of our more stable factors. So we look at all of these factor scores at the industry group level. So the 25 industry groups now, thanks to Gix, they added another one to make it much more confusing for us. Anyway, uh, we rank all the stocks within each industry group from most attractive to least attractive on our total score. And those scores can be broken down to those 15 factors that I mentioned. We have long factors and we have short factors. So again, I think that's another differentiator in that we rank stocks from most attractive long to least attractive long. And then we also rank stocks from the most attractive short to the least attractive short. Oh, wow. A lot of managers that had issues, you may remember probably about a decade ago, there was kind of an overabundance of 130-30 funds. And a lot of them kind of blew up because what they were doing was going, they were ranking stocks from most to least attractive, long in the top, short in the bottom. And what you're doing in effect is doubling your risk. 
Because if you have a factor bet, you're, you're either, you're, so then you're betting all on undervalued and then shorting all your overvalued names. Well, if the value inverts, you're going to get double, double the impact. Um, that's not what we do. So it is possible mathematically for a stock to be a recommended short and a recommended long because those models are different. So uh, does that give you kind of a, a reasonable yeah. favor of, of what no, we I mean, it's, it's definitely a, it's a different approach to what we've heard from other people on the interviewing process here. So it's it's really cool to hear something, you know, with a little bit of a different thought process going into it. Right. Um, and then we're always on the lookout for new factor ideas, things that, you know, we'll read research papers, we'll see, we'll talk to people and, and try to identify what factors uh, seem to be kind of creeping up as far as efficacy. Uh, over probably the last five to eight years, we've seen a real increase in efficacy looking at factors that involve free cash flow. Uh, another one that I find very interesting, a lot of the academic papers that I'm sure we all read in, in, uh, in our collegiate years, uh, having to do with beta and having to do with like dividend yield and dividend payouts. I feel like that information has become very pervasive throughout the market and it's just not as valuable as it used to be. Whereas your free cash flow is kind of a newer, newer, you know, last 15 years, it seems to be much more effective now at selecting stocks. And in the, you know, the dividends can be manipulated, whereas the free cash flow, it's what the yeah, companies actually generate. Yeah, yeah, it's true. So you started out with a degree in physics. I did. And was math is kind of just your fun and games, uh, mental athletics or something? Or I've, I've always liked math. I like solving problems. Uh, my mom was a math teacher. And so, yeah, I just like math. So I, I figured physics was a normal extension. I, I mean, that wasn't something you chose to pursue. It was sort of like, sound like financial services was more. more top yeah, of that's mind, fair. So. I, when I finished undergrad, I was not ready to go right into graduate school. And no one needs a, you know, bachelor's degree physicist. There, there just aren't that many of them out there. <laughs> they, you know, you might as well finish. We got another six years to go, buddy. And so yes. I was, I was ready to start working. I needed a break, and uh, I don't know. Just I guess my career just kind of found its way. My my grandmother was a big investor, uh, very much into investing, and it was always something that I was passionate about and enjoyed. I just never really thought to to pursue it as a career, um, and I just kind of. While I was at Chase and I was doing that, the mortgage work, I did got a, a professional certificate in finance at UCSD. And I just, just to kind of see if I really enjoyed it, if it was something I really did want to pursue. And I really enjoyed it. I loved the financial statement analysis, looking at stocks. I just thought it was, I, I found it fun. And if you can get paid to do something that's fun, maybe that's why I keep my hair. I don't know. I, I find <laughs> that's it true, because right? I would not find that fun. <laughs> Yeah, you're starting to sound like Warren Buffett now. <laughs> exactly. Oh, no, yeah, right. <laughs> well, we're like to pay compliments, isn't it? Yeah, yeah I think so. So okay. you're, you're a co-manager. You're actually on the investment committee with Convergence. Is that how this works? We're, we're a smaller shop. Uh, the founder, Dave, and I are the two portfolio managers. Todd is our uh, chief technology officer. Uh, so again, it's sort of six. Uh, we have a compliance guy, a person that helps us with distribution, and then kind of an office manager that makes sure we all do our work. Uh, Todd's the, Todd does all the computer programming. We pull in a, probably about three or four million data points every night. Uh, and then we own all of our own factors, which I think is which is pretty commendable. We used to have a lot of our factors written uh, in a third party's programming language. And probably about five or six years ago, we kind of got nervous. Like, what if they go, what if something happens to them? then we're, we're done. 
So it was a really, really fun, probably about two or three year project of rewriting all of the factors in our own SQL code uh, and then reconciling to make sure the data points were all valid. It was a long project, but it was actually very beneficial in that we could verify all the data coming in was still clean. We got all our stuff from uh, Cap IQ. Uh, and then it provided us the opportunity to double check all of the calculations. So the calculations we, some of them were a legacy from when uh, Dave was working in his prior job. And then they migrated to market QA and then they might we migrated to our own personal SQL code. So we had two opportunities to verify all of the calculations and all the data points, make sure everything was very consistent. We also like to double check everything and recreate most of the factors using uh, current data uh, from Bloomberg. So I'll do the same calculations in Excel. And if, if my calculations in Excel match up with, with the old methodology versus our new SQL calculation, we're fairly confident that we're actually getting, we're teasing out from the from the market data what we, what we think we're teasing out, right? So Dave always says garbage in, garbage out. So we have to make sure when the data is clean and then that what we're doing is, is the math is right. Yeah, we, we similarly have a very extensive Excel program that helps us manage our, you know, controls and uh, same thing. You have to know as a human that yeah. sometimes that data output is like, well, that can't be, you know, and there's, a, there's an anomaly there you just can't take for granted. But, yeah. You know, in this process, one of the, th I mean, you have a, you, had, you mentioned your bias about uh, managers and the star kind of pick here and there, that kind of thing. Um, and I've heard you mention that you've got like a more compelling uh, signal right now that appears to be the free cash flow. Yes. Um, that I mean, obviously, that comes from seeing what the outcomes are from the from the signals you get, and just getting more and more feedback, right? So as you right. as you uh, extract something and you get results, then you see how those results work, and and then fine tune whether or not you want to weight stronger on one thing or another. Is that That's is that a that's Fair way so we review all of our the factor signals. So let's say let's take for example we have a valuation composite, right? We'll have we have maybe twenty or 50, twenty or twenty five value ish factors. We may only use uh, twelve in the composite, but every month or two or three we'll we'll kind of run through a couple of the factor composites and we'll say okay let's look at the suite of twenty five and see which ones of these twenty fives are giving us good or bad signals? Are, are some of them decaying? Are some of them improving? Is, is there some you know, consistency to what is improving or eroding? Uh, and maybe we need to make a, a change out for one of the factors that's in the composite. Now, to aid us with that, one thing that we're actually really excited about in the last uh, year and a half, two years, we have started to implement some machine learning type of methodologies for identifying factors that seem to be factors and composites and groups of composites that seem to be bubbling to the top. It's made it a lot more efficient for us because it's very laborious to pull up 25, 30 factors, look at it, see, and, and when we're doing that, you're only looking at one slice of time. So actually one of our partners, his son just graduated in, in machine learning type programming. So we had him work for us this summer and we did all, I mean, my knowledge of machine learning just exploded this summer. It was really, really very interesting doing some of the uh, the lasso regressions and doing some of the random trees or random forest. Uh, my partner jokes that it's called the rainforest methodology, but it's actually not. But it, it, <laughs> uh, So it's just been really neat because we want to try to figure out what 
ideas we're missing or what ideas we should maybe take another look at to see, you know, maybe this is a factor that, you know, hasn't really resonated with anything up to this point, but it's really done quite well. Is there something that we need to investigate further? To what extent do, you, do like macro factors play into your modeling? Like, do, do you pay heed to, you know, there's this geopolitical event taking place or there's that's a, that's a great question. We we actually don't have any macro factors. And the reason Dave and I, we've had multiple discussions about it, and it's just not something we've ever thought about because macro factors are just they're so difficult to 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 put into your process because sometimes, you know, a good unemployment print can actually be a bad for the economy or bad for the stocks. Uh, bad for stock market uh, and vice versa. And so it's it's hard to get that the log right, whether you wanted a positive one or a negative one, uh, whether the print's good or, or bad. Like right now, uh, everyone's so nervous about the Fed hiking rates. When you get a, a good unemployment print, then everyone gets a little bit nervous that they're going to continue raising rates, right? So that's it's actually a bad. So we don't do that. So what we think is a better methodology is just looking at the stock level data. And when stocks that do better in a certain economic environment are performing better then those the factors of those stocks will be scoring higher and will be will be weighting more towards those factors that tend to be held by stocks of, of, of similar nature if you will so do, do, do you find on balance that you become more kind of momentum than contrarian or is there no real hard and fast answer on that because one, one well, would think that if, if you're getting positive some things on factors and you know we were on, we were pretty heavy momentum uh, around 17 and 2017, 2018. And, and a lot of it was just because the market was really momentum driven. There was, it was an all beta type environment. Um, so it can happen. But to, to kind of counter that, we have two, two main scoring methodologies. So again, we take all this information, we put them into signal composites, and we try to come up with what we call our, our, our super composite scores. And we have one super composite that is equally weighted. We call that our strategic uh, score. In other words, mm-hmm. all 14 composites for the long model, they're equally weighted. It doesn't, the environment doesn't impact the scoring at all. Another one is our tactical model where it says, okay, given the industry group, let's say capital goods, of these 14 factors, which of these 14 has been most effective or which, have been, which few have been most effective at identifying winners, subsequent winners, and which factors have been least effective. And our model will tilt towards the factors that tend to have been more effective. Uh, and then we take kind of the combination of those two scores. That's kind of where the, the portfolio manager decision-making comes in. We will rank the stocks from most to least attractive on our tactical score, but then we want to see corroboration from our strategic score. So, Do you find, do you find it with, within the portfolio itself, do you... Do you ever take like a, I mean, what would an overweighted position look like in terms of a percentage of portfolio? Is it, is it a 4% allocation? Is it a 14% allocation? Like what is it? Let me me back up. Let me back up. So when I'm talking position or when I'm talking the factor tilting, that is, we are overweighting the contribution of a stock's factor score to its overall stock weight or stock score, excuse me. So let's say you have a, and all the stock scores are, it's, it's just a simple Z-score, standard deviations from the mean. So if Microsoft has a, an aggregate score of 1.1, uh, and then the next software company has a score of 1.0, we would go with, with Microsoft. Now, the weighting in the portfolio is a whole nother situation. 
uh, of the individual position. So to talk about the weighting, in general, we want to equally weight within uh, the industry groups. Uh, but we've found over the last probably five years, it's more effective to have kind of what we what we call a cap aware weighting scheme. So if there's a 10% weight to energy and there's a hundred stocks in the energy group, we wanna be long typically the top decile of energy. So that would mean we, we wanna be long 10 tickers. So if you wanna equally weight those, we want a 10% weight, each one gets a 1% weight. Now, you're gonna find in, in the energy group, you're gonna have some big fat cats up here and some smaller cats. So we will tilt towards those. So those might have a 1.2 or 1.3% weight. And we're gonna knock these other ones down to 60, 70 basis points. I see. So it's not purely based on market cap, but it's definitely cap aware. And our short book, to make this an even more difficult answer, uh, and I know I'm going on too long, uh, the shorts are equally weighted just straight up. So we try to weight those, you know, like with the energy example, it'd be 1% across the board because we don't want to take too much idiosyncratic risk with our with our short book. Yeah, that makes sense. What are some of the activities you enjoy doing? Let's talk a little bit about uh, where you live, San Diego. Some of the, you, you mentioned earlier, I think that uh, sure. enjoying the, the outdoor life. You want to talk a little bit about around like, what, what do you do to kind of re relieve some stress to give you more time to focus on managing yeah, clients? I love, uh, I'm super into mountain biking right now. So I have a, a good group of guys and we typically go ride on Thursday nights. Uh, and we'll also ride a couple of times uh, during the week if we can get over mission trails or over to Santee or something like that to do, to yeah. try to try to hurt ourselves. Uh, <laughs> so I really so what's, enjoy that. What's, what's really the gnarliest wreck you've been in or <laughs> witnessed? <laughs> I'm kind of a sissy. I don't push myself that hard. I, I did have a really bad fall Halloween a year and a half ago. It was at the end of a very long ride. We, we I was feeling way too confident. Uh, I'd even hit a few jumps and stuff like that. And, and we were literally riding out. It was the end of the ride. And there was just some rock with some loose dirt on top of it. The problem was I, I was probably going about 20 miles an hour and I had no business going 20 miles an hour at that point in the ride. Again, we've been riding for a couple hours, so exhausted. And I just fell down so fast. I didn't even get a chance to pull my leg out from under my bike. So skinned Oof. my whole leg up and I hyperextended these three fingers. Uh, and it just, it still aches to today. So that was about a year and a half ago. So that was. Yeah. It's actually a good lead in for, uh, for risk management. Yeah. Because, yeah. Uh, it's one of the things that we're phobic about, uh, measured risk is, is that whole thing of what the drawdown can be. So when you have a year like last year, 2022, and the market starts to sell off and gets, you know, heated, do you have stops or some kind of just punt to cash or do you have, I mean, what's the response to that type of environment? Do you just continue to run your models and find better stocks to own or? Does it sort of hold still? And just kind of give me a feel for how that behaves. So uh, we always kind of keep an eye on risk and, and make sure we're we're making prudent decisions. So we have tweaked our process quite a bit over the uh, fifteen or so years. One of them was was implementing that cap aware waiting scheme. We were a little bit more cap aware uh, probably about ten years ago. So that was one thing we did to try to minimize uh, stock specific risk. Uh, another thing is we really keep a close eye on our hedge ratio. So when when trades start to go against us, we will rebalance that hedge ratio back, usually within 28 or 48 hours, just so that we don't we don't want to let things run too far. So we really want to make sure we're keeping our, our hedge ratio on that strategy, on our long short strategy, very much in line with what we we want. 
we are very diversified. Again, we were long the top decile and short the bottom decile. So we have about 130 to 140 uh, longs and close to 170 shorts. And the reason we have 170 shorts is there are certain industry groups that present significantly higher idiosyncratic risk. So for example, pharmaceuticals, right? We don't, or biotechs, pharmaceutical biotech, same group, but biotech names, you can get it handed to you if they get an approval that you're not expecting. And so to minimize that risk, instead of being short, so let's say it's 120 stocks in the group, we want to be short 12, we're going to push that up to 17 or 18 uh, and just take a smaller position. And what, what we do at the end of the day, the positions that we take long or short, we want them in aggregate to be providing to us the factor exposures that we believe are going to be rewarded or punished in the subsequent month. Uh, so if we do it with 10 stocks or we do it with 15, that that the aggregate factor exposure should remain quite similar. Uh, we just want to get that factor exposure with as little idiosyncratic risk as, as we can without being excessive and you know shorting 700 names or something. Yeah, but it doesn't sound like you're moving to cash or just going to the sideline. It's... No, we don't. We really don't manage um, the, the cash allocation in that regard. Uh, we try to stay really, really rigid with our uh, hedge ratio. And we believe the responsibility of cash management should lie with, uh, you know, the financial advisor or the investor. Um, we don't want to tell them we know how to manage cash. We're not making a market call. We're just saying, hey, we're going to provide you with a strategy that's about 70% net exposure, about a 0.6 beta. Uh, we should be getting, we want to get you about a 90% up capture and significantly reduced down capture. That's, that's our goal. We want to provide a consistent product for, for our clients. Yeah. Do, do you mostly work with, you, you mostly manage money for other advisors by the sound of things, not a whole lot of yes. direct clients? We have a couple of direct clients. Uh, a lot of relatives, uh, and then we also have mostly it's RIAs. Yes. Okay. Great. I mean, and then, and of course, you know, you, you're teeing it up as if it's really up. Now it's up to the RIA to decide how much of your fund to use relative to what the client needs are. So it kind of takes you out of out of the direct firing line of trying to do the, the direct asset allocation modeling. I was going to ask a question about how you manage, you know, client expectations. But right. I guess it's not really a suitable question given what the way you guys. Well, some of our clients use us as a bond surrogate. Some of our clients use us in an alt bucket. Some of us, some clients use it as an equity allocation. So it's really up to the uh, advisors how they, they want to use the product. And I sort of, I think I heard in there that really your outlook is really only about a month or relatively short duration on your sort of where you think yes, you're going to. We formally rebalance the strategy every month. And all of our back testing is done with a monthly rebalance uh to, to see to assess whether our factors are effective or not but with that said our long holdings we tend to turn the long book over every year and a half or so uh whereas our shorts will turn over maybe four or five times a year so the holding the holding period for our shorts is is, is shorter but it's not it's not a month we're not turning it over 12 times a year yeah. so i mean and if you have a, is there a thesis in your short or your long? Like if you're trying to think something that's going to go from $30 to $60 and it's going to take nine months to do it, but it happens over three weeks. It, I, I assume the calculus would change and something would be rebalanced. Well, more than likely, if, if that were to happen, you know, your valuation score, all your valuation metrics are going to be either more in favor or more out of favor. And that's going to lower you in the ranking of that, of that industry. Yeah, right. So 
yeah, it all comes back to the to the factor score. So you, we're using a, a private company, you built your own models. Is, do you see anything in the financial services, either like maybe with machine learning or some other, any other kind of technology platform, AI or otherwise, that you could see as a game changer or something you really need to incorporate or think something you think is just woof, woof and not going to help that's out there right now? You know, not off the top of my head. I mean, I can see a lot of this. Well, we still have a product that systematic tax loss, tax loss harvesting. We've run that strategy for 15 years where we track the S&P 500 or whatever benchmark you want. And we systematically harvest tax losses, you know, on a monthly basis at 32 days or so. That was a very unique strategy. And now all the big, you know, wirehouse, not wirehouses, but like the Schwab's and Fidelities are just replicating that same process for free. And they're doing that. They're doing it without... I mean, we had a we have a patent on it it's hanging on the wall in the office and it, it's just it's not a patentable thing anymore it's just it's yeah. so much more easy Impossible, to yeah. with technology yeah well you usually wrap these things up by saying is there any question that you wish we would have asked you uh so this is your chance to kind of share something that didn't come up or have a conversation about a topic that you think is important that you want to cover well, to, to expand on, you had asked about my, about my hobbies. One other hobby that I do have is woodworking. I really love woodworking. I like making custom furniture and cutting boards and charcuterie boards. So I, I enjoy doing that. You want to plug that on Etsy or anything? Or is it just for your, <laughs> for your own deal? Yeah, feel free to check me out on Instagram. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, that's just another thing that helps you. A little bit less, a little bit better stress relief than uh, the mountain biking. Yeah, uh, yeah. I'm right there with you. I enjoy building things because we we live our lives in a in a world of uh, commas and zeros. And, right. You know, it's very difficult sometimes to get a physical manifestation of some something we've done. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I appreciate the the physical things being built and. and yeah, you, you just have to look, look out for the finger things that can happen from time to time. Yeah, that is true. <laughs> that is 100 percent correct. In case you in case you're wondering, they're all there. <laughs> so I mean, a question for for you guys. You know, as a smaller, more boutique investment management shop, one of the, you know, headwinds that we always face is trying to get in front of RIAs uh, and just having people take a serious look at us. Uh, and a lot of them will say, you know, you guys are fine. Your returns are great. I see you're a gold gold medalist here or you have five or 10 stars over there. That's great. But I just from a client perspective, I, I can't from a career risk perspective, I can't go with the smaller, more boutique manager. I'd rather go with you know, the highly recognizable names that everyone's comfortable with. Um, and I feel like that's just a headwind that's only going to get stronger going forward because I, I feel like uh, as clients become, the clients of the RIAs become more aware and more, uh, well, they think they're more knowledgeable about it and they want to ask more questions and, or they're saying, you know, this product seems to be very high fee. Why can't we get this for two basis points? And it's like, well, we think there's some there's benefit to paying for it. But I've had conversations with a lot of advisors and they say, look, I just can't get my client over your 50 basis point fee. And my comment is my returns are 2% better instead of fees. Yeah, I, I, I feel that same pain with you. I, it's a terrible, terrible answer. Really, unfortunately, I think the main the main response to that is move on to the next RIA because they're, they're, yeah. they're, they're concentrating on the wrong thing. You're right. Um, I think the biggest problem that that we face is the sort of consolidation onto the TAMP platforms, mm -hmm. yeah. and the and the uh, particularly in our case, we're very option driven. 
fact, our primary method for getting our exposure to risk is through the use of options. And the platforms just don't lend themselves to that. Uh, there's a number of reasons, including the fact that you know option contracts can't be bought in fractions. We can't do like 0.265 option contracts. Yeah, right. You have to buy one uh, or two, but not one and a half. So we really face some even more difficult hurdles in distribution. I think you have an ETF uh, channel that you manage to. We do. Yeah, right. We can't do that. And so it's like whatever hurdles you're experiencing, we're, we're a little bit even tougher. Um, so it's, it's definitely a challenge. I have something to add to that. I think, I think one needs to have that, that the reason that they're going to be using you can't be based on fees. There has to be some underlying client concern that's being met by using the strategies that you adopt. You know, so I think, you know, I think Larry makes a good point that if, you know, if the RA is kind of giving you reason why they can't use you you really want to find the ones who give you a reason that they do use you yeah and, how, and then right. check and then see check with those guys like how are they positioning that with their advisors and you know replicating that model that it's it's this it's the classic old some will some won't i yeah, might I, next, I next call almost more importantly that if you're in if you're in with a relationship where an raa is valuing based on fee structure yeah, then right. you're starting a relationship that's going to fee grind you into non-profitability. You're 100 right. So, 100% so if it starts out at we don't take 50, we'll only do 42. Once they've cracked that threshold, then why not 37? And particularly because they've given you more money, and then eventually it becomes 16 and eight, and then you just have that client because it adds to your AUM value, but it has no revenue to your to your bottom line. So you're 100. I think that's a really slippery slope to start with uh, the relationship. It really needs to be something where they value the services you're providing. Because, you know, if if you're out there looking for some other service, particularly when it comes to advice, you do not hire the cheapest consultant. You know, you, when, when you're talking about... You know, that's a really, that's a valid, that's a really valid point. I mean... Yeah, I mean, the, the people you, that you brag, actually brag about the services are the ones who are hiring the attorney that's $1,800 an hour. Yeah. Right. The reason that attorney gets $1,800 an hour is because they win or they have advice that's going to be that valuable. Right. So I think with the right context, you can certainly make a case for the fact that, you know, you should be grateful that I'm not charging 100 basis points because I think it's worth it. And just rephrase the conversation. Yeah, I mean, we, you know, I'm, I'm from South Africa and we have this little saying over there. It's, it's in Afrikaans and I'll, I'll tell you what it is and I'll translate it for you. It's Chutkup. Astir, which means that the, that the cheap alternative is very expensive. And it's to Larry's point, you know, you don't pay. You know, if I can find you an attorney for $25 an hour, I promise you, you're not going to want to use that guy. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's like, exactly. you're going to be, uh-uh. it's just. Yeah. I mean, so from what I've seen of your performance and the structure that you're bringing to the table and risk controls, and you know, I would not be embarrassed at all about charging 50 basis points. Right. So. Uh, and I think it helps to hear that from a peer, just to understand that that, that is the case. So, yeah. So, but good question. Yeah. It's, yeah. Very, it's very possible that ETF, or excuse me, those options can be available in an ETF. I mean, it, we converted to an ETF uh, on February in February of 22. Uh, we were the first long, short mutual fund to convert to an ETF ever. Um, and we, you know, have figuring out how to, we actually had a conversation with RIA today. He's like, you can't do shorts in the ETF. I'm like, well, I hate to break it to you, but we can, <laughs> and we are. 
Uh, and then it's like, well, someone hasn't been paying attention to compliance or we can. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, we, you know, we work with U.S. Bank. They're a pretty big bank. I'm pretty sure they, they, they're not going to let us just, nah. it's not the wild west here. So that, that was an interesting conversation. That's good. Well, I look forward to continuing the conversation, maybe off camera. And, sure. Uh, we do want to keep it to a reasonable deal for our audiences here. So once again, Justin. Justin Newberg with Convergence Investment Partners here in San Diego and elsewhere. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Thanks for joining the show. Thanks very much. This interview also may contain statements that constitute endorsements of measured risk portfolios, also known as MRP. Please note that any such statements are not made by clients of MRP, but by representatives of other investment advisory firms that work with MRP. No compensation was offered or given in exchange for these statements. However, a conflict of interest exists due to the incentive to give an endorsement in the interest of a good future working relationship between the endorser and MRP.